0: Chapter Fifteen of An Eye for an Eye by William Lequeux. This LibreVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Fifteen, The Near Beyond. The remainder of our pull to Riverdean was accomplished in comparative silence. Crushed, hopeless, and despairing, I bent to the oars mechanically, with the feeling that in all else my interest was dead, save in the woman I so dearly loved who lounging back among her cushions sighed now and then her face very grave and agitated i spoke at last urging her to reconsider her decision but she only responded with a single word a word which destroyed all my fondest hopes impossible in that bright hour when the broad bosom of the thames sent back the reflection of the summer sun when the sky was clear as that in italy when all the world seemed rejoicing and the gay laughter wafted over the water from the launches, boats, and punts gliding past us, we alone had heavy hearts. Overwhelmed by this bitter disappointment and sorrow, the laughter jarred upon my ears. I tried to shut it out, and with my teeth rowed with all my might against the stream until, skirting a shady wood, we rounded the bend of the stream and suddenly drew up at the landing steps of Riverdeen. "'Why, here's Ava!' cried mary running down to the water's edge her tennis racket in her hand and frank too then turning to eva as we stood together on the lawn a moment later she asked where's your mother we expected her all the afternoon isn't she here asked eva in surprise no well she started to come here immediately after luncheon she must have missed the train or something she must for it's now past five i really hope nothing has happened nothing ever happens to mother observed eva with a light laugh she'll turn up presently then she explained how i had called at the hollies and she had brought me along on reaching riverdene she had instantly concealed her agitation and reassumed her old buoyant spirits in order that none should suspect she was an adept at the art of disguising her feelings for none would now believe that twenty minutes before her face had been blanched almost deathlike in agitation together we walked up the lawn being warmly welcomed by mrs blaine and introduced to several friends who seated beneath a tree were idling over afternoon tea a pleasant function in which we were of course compelled to join seated next to mrs blaine i gossiped for a long time with her learning that her husband was still in paris detained upon his company business he was often there for he was one of the greatest shippers of champagne and much of his business was with firms in the French capital. "'I don't expect him back for at least a fortnight,' she said. "'The other day when writing I mentioned that you had visited us again, and he sent his good wishes to you.' "'Thanks,' I answered. Truth to tell, I rather liked him. He was a typical city man, elderly spruce, smartly dressed, always showing a large expanse of elaborate shirt-front, fastened by diamond studs, and a heavy gold albert, a fashion which seems to alone belong to wealthy merchants and to that financial tribe who attend and speak at meetings at Winchester House or the Cannon Street Hotel. From time to time when I glanced at Eva, I was surprised to see how happily she smiled and to hear how light and careless was her laughter. Had she already forgotten my words and the great overwhelming sorrow her response had brought upon me? To Mrs. Blaine's irresponsible chatter I answered quite mechanically for all my thoughts were of that woman whom i loved deeply i reflected upon all she had said remembering how intensely agitated she had become when i had implied that she was in possession of some secret the vehemence with which she had denied any imputation was quite sufficient to show that i had unconsciously referred to the one object uppermost in her mind i was undecided in opinion whether her refusal to accept my love was actually in consequence of her fear of Mary's jealousy. If so, then Mary was in possession of this secret of hers. There was no doubt in my mind that she really loved me, and that if she were fearless she would hasten to reciprocate my affection. Apparently hers was a guilty secret, held over her as menace by Mary Blaine, and knowing this she had been compelled to respond in the negative. This theory took possession of me, and during the hours I spent at Riverdean that evening, dining and boating with several of my fellow visitors, I reflected upon it, viewing it in its every phase, and finding it to be well founded. Indeed, as I sat opposite the two girls at dinner, I watched the actions of both furtively behind the great silver epine of roses and ferns, and although they chanted merrily, laughing and joking with their male companions, I nevertheless fancied that I could detect a slight expression of concealed annoyance or was it of hatred upon eva's face whenever mary addressed her ever so slight merely the quivering or slight contraction of the eyebrows it passed unnoticed by the merry party yet with my eyes on the alert for any sign it was to me a proof sufficient that the theory i had formed was correct and that the woman i loved went in deadly fear of mary blaine if this were really so did it not add additional color to the other vague theories that had been aroused in my mind through various inexplicable circumstances? Did it not indeed point to the fact that, upon Eva, although she might have been a victim of that bewildering tragedy in Fillimore Place, there rested a terrible guilt? I recollected how she had gone to St. James's Park to keep the appointment which the unknown assassin's accomplice had made, and the remarkable allegation of old Lowry the herbalist two facts which, viewed in the light of other discoveries, were circumstances in themselves sufficient evidence of her guilt. Besides, had she not with her own lips told me that one day ere long I should hate her very name and thank her for refusing to accept my love? Was not this sufficient proof of the correctness of my theory? As evening wore on and darkness deepened into night, the strings of Chinese lanterns at the bottom of the lawn were lit, imparting to the place a very gay almost fairy-like aspect there were many remarks regarding the non-appearance of lady Glaslyn. mrs blaine seemed extremely anxious yet eva betrayed no anxiety merely saying she may have felt unwell and returned i shall no doubt find her at home with one of her bad headaches thus all were reassured nevertheless the incident struck me as curious for eva's calm unconcern showed that her mother must be a woman of somewhat eccentric habits simpson drove us both to shepperton station in the motor car and we caught the ten-thirty train from which she alighted at hampton while i continued my journey up to waterloo during the fifteen minutes or so we were alone together in the train our conversation was mainly of our feller visitors of a sudden i asked have you seen mr langdale lately yes i often see him it is lives quite near us,' she answered frankly. "'You told me this afternoon, Ava, that you were not engaged. "'Are you confident there is not likely to be a match between you?' "'A match between us?' she exclaimed with an expression of surprise. "'What, are you joking, or do you actually suspect that I love him?' "'I have thought so.' "'Never,' she answered decisively. "'I may be friendly. "'But to love a man of that stamp, a man who thinks more of his dress than a woman, never!' I smiled at this denunciation of his foppishness. He was certainly a howling cab, forever dusting his patent-leather boots with his handkerchief, shooting forth his cuffs, and settling his tie. He parted his hair in the middle and patronized women because he believed himself to be a lady killer. Truly he was a typical specimen of the city bounder, who might some day develop into a bucket-shop keeper, a company promoter, or perhaps a money-lender. At that moment when we were speaking the train entered the station of Hampton, and she rose. "'Tell me, Ava,' I said with deep earnestness, as I took her hand to say farewell, "'is what you told me this afternoon the absolute truth? Can you never, never reciprocate my love?' Her lips quivered for an instant as her great blue eyes met mine. Even though she wore a veil, I saw that there were tears in them. "'Yes,' she answered in a hoarse tone. I have told you the truth mr irwin we may never love never the train was already at a standstill and she was compelled to descend hurriedly good night she said hoarsely as i released her hand then without waiting for my response she hurried away and was a moment later lost in the darkness of the road beyond the barrier the carriage door was slammed the train moved on and as it did so i flung myself back into a corner plunged in gloom and abject despair she was the only woman i had ever truly loved yet she was held apart from me it was the first passionate agony of my life i suffered now as those do without hope i found dick at home smoking furiously and busily writing in duplicate for the morning papers a strange story he had that evening picked up on at gypsy hill concerning a romantic elopement which would cause considerable sensation in those little tea and tennis circles which call themselves suburban society he briefly related it to me without pausing in his work writing on oil tissue paper and taking six copies one for each of the great dailies my friend's position in the journalistic world was by no means an uncommon one for many men holding good berths on newspapers add to their incomes by doing what in press parlance is termed lineage that is, contributing to other newspapers for the payment of a penny, or perhaps three halfpence a line. I told him that I'd been down to Dean, but so engrossed was he in his work that he hazarded no remark, and when he had finished and placed the copies in separate envelopes already addressed, he put on his hat and went forth to the boy messenger office in Chancery Lane, whence they would be distributed to the sub editors about Fleet Street. I lit a cigarette and stretched myself in the armchair gloomily pondering of late we had spoken but little of the mystery in phillimore place for other inquiries had occupied dick's attention and on my part loving Eva as i did i preferred to continue my investigation alone perhaps i had been sitting there a quarter of an hour or so when suddenly a strange dizziness crept over me it might i thought be due to my cigarette therefore i tossed it out of the window and sat quiet but the feeling of nausea, accompanied by a giddiness such as I had never before experienced, increased rather than diminished, and in order to light against it I rose and attempted to cross the room. I must have walked very unsteadily, for in the attempt I upset a chair, the back of which was broken, besides sweeping Dick's terracotta tobacco pot from the table and smashing it to fragments. I clutched at the table in order to steady myself but found myself reeling and swaying as though I were intoxicated. My legs seemed unable to support me, and the thought crossed my mind that this seizure might be one of paralysis. The idea was horrible. At length, after some difficulty, I managed to again crawl back to the chair, and sinking down, closed my eyes. By doing so my brain seemed more evenly balanced, yet it seemed as though inside my skull was all on fire and I wondered if exposure to the sun while rowing had caused these remarkable symptoms. I recollected how blazing hot it had been from Shepperton up to the second lock, and how once Eva, ever solicitous for my welfare, had warned me to be careful of sunstroke. Yes, I had been careless, and this was undoubtedly the result. My hands were trembling, as though palsied, just as my legs had done a few minutes before. Yet, strangely enough, I felt compelled to clench my fingers into my palms. All my muscles seemed slowly to contract, until even my jaws worked with painful difficulty. An appalling fear fell upon me. I was suffering from tetanus. Resolved not to allow my jaws to close tightly, I opened and shut my mouth, knowing that if it became fixed I should die a slow, lingering death as so many thousands had done. If I could only keep my jaws working the seizure might, perhaps, pass. I longed for Dick's return. At that hour there was no one I could summon to call a doctor. I glanced at the clock. He had been already gone for nearly half an hour. Would he never come back? The sickening dizziness increased and seemed to develop into an excruciating pain in my throbbing temples. I placed my hand to my head and felt that the veins were standing out hard and knotted, just as though I were exerting every muscle and some feet of strength. Then, almost at that very instant. I was gripped by a fearful pain in the stomach, as though it were being torn by a thousand needles. A cold sweat stood upon my brow until it rolled down my cheeks in great beads. I tried to shout for help, but my tongue claved to the roof of my mouth, and my voice was thin and weak as a child's. My throat seemed to have contracted. I was altogether helpless. My agony was excruciating, yet I could only await Dick's return. Perhaps he had met a friend and was lounging in some bar, ignorant of my peril. The only doctor I knew in the vicinity was a hospital surgeon who lived a little way down Chancery Lane, over the Safe Deposit Company vaults. I clenched my teeth to endure the racking, frightful pains by which my body was tortured, and in patience awaited my friend's homecoming. My eyes were closed, for the gaslight was too strong for them. Perhaps I lost consciousness. At any rate, I was awakened from a kind of heavy stupor, by dick's tardy entry good god erwin he gasped why what's the matter what's occurred you're as white as a sheet man i'm ill i managed to gasp with extreme difficulty go and get tweedy at once he stood for a moment looking at me with a frightened expression then turned and dashed away down the stairs i remember raising myself after he had gone in an endeavour to reach a cupboard where there was some brandy in a bottle but as i made a step forward all strength left me. I became paralyzed, clutched at the table, missed it, and fell headlong to the floor. Then all consciousness became blotted out. I knew no more. How long I remained insensible I have only a very vague idea. It must have been many hours. When, however, I slowly became aware of things about me I found myself lying upon my own bed, partly dressed. I tried to move but my limbs seemed icy cold and rigid. I tried to think but my thoughts were at first only a confused jumble of reminiscences. There was a tearing pain across my stomach and across my brow, a pain that was excruciating. It seemed as though my waist was bound tightly with a belt of wire while my brain throbbed as if my skull must burst. I opened my eyes but the bright light of day caused me to close them quickly again. Noises sounded about me, strange and distorted. I distinguished voices, and I knew that I was not alone. Again I opened my eyes. "'Thank heaven, my dear old fellow, you are saved!' cried Dick, whose coat was off as he bent down eagerly to me, looking with keenest anxiety into my face. "'Saved?' I echoed. "'What has happened?' For at that moment I recollected little of the past. Then I saw, standing beside Dick, my friend Dr. Tweedy of the Royal Free Hospital in Gray's Inn Road, a mild-mannered old gentleman whom I had many times met during my inquiries at that institution. "'What's happened?' the latter repeated. "'That's what we want to ask you.' "'I don't know,' I answered. "'Except that I was suddenly taken frightfully queer.' "'Taken queer? I should rather think you were,' he said, bending down to get a better look at my countenance, at the same time feeling my pulse. "'You're better now. Much better.' "'But it's been a very narrow squeak for you, I can tell you.' "'What's been the matter with me?' I inquired, mystified. "'You've been eating something that hasn't quite agreed with you,' he answered with a mysterious smile. "'But that couldn't have brought on a seizure like this,' I argued weakly. "'Well,' the doctor said, "'of course you can tell better what you've been eating than I can. Only one fact is clear to me.' "'And what's that?' I asked. "'Why, that you've been within an ace of death, young man,' he answered you'll want the most careful treatment too if we are to get you round again, for the truth is you've been poisoned. Poisoned? I gasped. Yes, he responded, handing me some medicine, and this seizure of yours is a very mysterious one indeed. I've never seen such symptoms before. That you've been poisoned is quite plain, but how the accident has occurred remains for us to discover later. End of chapter 15 Recording by Tom Weiss, TomsAudiobooks.com